Hear the word of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. And thanks for joining us on Kids Choir 2018. Man, they did it, huh? Three years in a row, no, no fist fights, no fires, uh, no, you know, no passing out or anything. So way to go. Uh, if you're one of the kids servants who helped pull the first service off, thank you guys so much. Uh, for those of you who don't know what happens over there, right around 212 and under kids are being served every Sunday. Uh, it's not daycare. You know, it's, it's biblical instruction trying to teach these kids in the way of the Lord, passing on the generation, to the next generation the, the glorious deeds that the Lord has done. And so we're thankful uh, for them and getting to see our kids up here. Uh, I feel personally convicted about getting my child to sleep because he yawned through that entire thing. I don't know if you saw it, but I guess that's on dad. Uh, so anyway, uh, sweet picture of um, what the Lord's doing here. We're grateful to have so many children in our church. Uh, this coming Wednesday, a couple of quick announcements. There's a church right down the street called Advent Christian Church, and they were kind of a thriving New Albany neighborhood church for a long, long time, and now uh, they're the kind of church that would love to have crying babies in their service, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's a church that's gotten older, and they've just brought in a new pastor from Chicago, and he's kind of out of towner and figuring out the rhythms of a new area, and They've uh, asked me to come and preach for them at a Christmas service on Wednesday night, and Pastor James and I over there are trying to work through, you know, a new friendship, and what does it look like for two churches that are a block apart from one another, or two blocks away from each other, partnered together, and so if anyone wants to come out, it'll be short, I promise, I know you guys get plenty of me on Sunday, so I won't talk too long, uh, but it would be a great opportunity for us to, you know, bless another church with our own presence, and so if you can make it out to that, uh, that would be great, and then also... This isn't really, this is just something to pray about and be aware of. Uh, at a member meeting a few weeks ago, we talked about that we were in conversations with a church on the south end of Louisville, Carlisle Avenue Baptist Church. It's a historic church in uh, the south end of Louisville. It's by Iroquois Park. And just this past week, their members all voted to affirm their adoption into the Sojourn uh, Collective family here. And, and so, so what that means is Carlisle Avenue Baptist Church is now Sojourn Carlisle. And our family of four churches has grown to five churches, and it's very much in a revitalization mode. So we're inheriting a building and some people, and hopefully we're going to send a hundred or so folks down there. So you'll be hearing more about this as it comes forward, but that's exciting. Our family of churches has grown, and uh, a friend of our church, he's out in North Carolina, he says 
Uh, one of my favorite things he says is, the health of a church should be uh, defined not by its seating capacity, so not how many butts we can fit in a room, but by its sending capacity. And there's this beautiful principle in the kingdom of God that as we release, as we send, the Lord multiplies. And so we're, there's folks that we're going to be saying goodbye to soon, friends of ours from Midtown, maybe some of you here will go, or you're at last week's service when we're sending out missionaries to Mexico, and that, there's always pain in that, in, in the sending, in the going, but we're trusting the Lord to do something beautiful with that. So thanks be to God for a new church in our family. If any of you want to support that, if you want to go to that, you can fill out a Connect card and and let us know. So we're excited about Sojourn Carlisle. Um, Now, we've got this week and next week left in Galatians. Almost done with Galatians. I'll give you a quick teaser trailer here. Um, In the beginning of the year, if you've ever wondered what God's will for your life is, we're going to tell you. So get ready. If you know someone who's confused about life or you've ever wondered, what, what do you want from me, Lord? We are going to tell you uh, the first December 30th and January 6th or whatever. So come to that and get excited. And then after that, we are starting a long journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, we'll go through the first seven chapters of Matthew between January and the spring. In the first few chapters, we're going to be looking at messy families. Anybody know somebody with a messy family situation? Thank you. I feel like my ministry was just affirmed there because I've got like six people to say preach, right? Uh, The first two chapters of Matthew are about Jesus's family tree. Uh, You know, he was born uh, and becomes a refugee. He's he's on the lamb from the law trying to be killed. Then he comes home and you see all these crazy family dynamics in the first two chapters of Matthew. And that's where we're going to start the end of January. So if you got family mess coming or if you know someone who has family mess, I encourage you to invite them to that. Two more weeks in Galatians uh, chapter 6, so let's go. Uh, One of the great joys of being a pastor vocationally or being a preacher, because I tend to, you can ask my wife about this, I tend to really enjoy socially awkward situations or when you see somebody get real uncomfortable socially all of a sudden. I don't know why, it just brings me great delight and... um, (laughs) I don't know why. And so the, one of the ways this most consistently happens is with a stranger when the question of vocation comes up. You know, the American question, what do you do? And I like to say, I'm a pastor, or I preach the word of God, you know, something like that. And they either like apologize for the language that they just used, or you can just see them stiffen up and get, get awkward. Uh, and I, I had a similar experience. I had one of these happen recently. Um, I love my wife. I try hard to be a good husband. Uh, We have a rule in my family, what my baby wants, my baby gets. And my baby wanted a minivan, so I went and bought my baby a minivan, right? Like, I'm not one of those guys that's embarrassed of a minivan. The room for activities is incredible. I really like it. Um, But I went to... Yeah, you saw what I did there. One guy, that was a reference. That was a reference. Uh, So to save a, a happy buck, I went to Cleveland to go get this car. Found it on the internet, found a great deal, and... I'm up there, I'm, I'm yucking up the salesman, my, my friend Damon, we got along, all this kind of stuff. The deal kind of went sideways, it was different than, it's this hard thing, like it's different than what it was advertised for on the internet, still kind of liked it, wasn't what we were looking for. I'm also in Cleveland now with no transportation. The dealership decides to get me a hotel room for the night, they screwed up, they owned it, they did a great job, and the next morning, Damon comes and picks me up from uh, my hotel, and you can tell he's different, like he's being a little weird with me. And he's like, so last night I went back to the dealership and I was getting your paperwork together. Um, and I saw you're a pastor. Right? Like, so we're in, a, we're in a car together and he whispers to me like there's, and I said, yeah. 
Uh, and he's like, so, uh, what did you do last night? And I was like, what? And he's like, well, you know, like, there's, like, there's stuff to do around here, but, like, you just seem so normal. But then I found out you're a pastor, so, like, what did you do? I was like, well, I looked for other cars on the internet for about an hour, and then I watched The Office on Netflix for, like, two hours, and then I went to bed. And he was like, right, 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 right. So, like, when you go home, do you do stuff? And I was like, what do you mean, Damon? He's like, so like last night I went out with my boys and we went out and we got a drink and we listened to music. I was like, are you asking me do I have friends and do we have fun together? And he was like, yeah, yeah, do you do, you do that? I was like, yes, Christians can have friends and some Christians can have fun, right? <laughs> some of you can. You know who I'm talking about. Y'all, people think fun's a waste of time. Uh, and so it was kind of funny. His mind was blown. He was like, so like, if you come back to Cleveland, we could go out, we could go do something. I was like, yeah, even if it's fun, like we can, we can go do it. Um, and so it's something that I found over and over when I talk with people who are outside of the church, but it's not just the people outside of the church. Some of you guys are uncomfortable right now because you, you hear where I'm going. Uh, a, a lot of people outside the church, but also inside of our church, Look at Christianity primarily as what you do or what you don't do. And so the, the culture around us looks at Christians and defines us based on what we do or do not do. And we've helped that conversation along by defining life with God primarily by what we do or what we don't do. What sets Christianity apart and above all religions um, is that you know, we're not a behavior-centered religion. So we're not a, a religion that you can boil down into a set of practices. Uh, we're not, and this might make some uncomfortable. We're not a book-centered religion either. We're at the heart of the Christian faith is, is a book, though we do have the Bible. Uh, the heart of the Christian faith isn't doctrine either. So we're different than all other religions because at the center of us isn't a behavior. It's not a book and it's not a doctrine. It's a person a man named Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal Jesus to us so that we might enter into fellowship with him. And the, the scriptures attest to this. Jesus rebukes the religious people, right? You, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you'll find life, but it's they that attest to me. If you're not reading the Bible to know Jesus, you're simply reading it wrong. Uh, so to, to put it another way, Christianity is a relational religion. It's First and foremost, about our relationship with God, but also with each other. The goal of our faith is relationship. The fruit of our faith is relationship. Over and over, the scriptures will say the litmus test. If you're trying to figure out how is your faith doing, look at your relationships. Christianity is centered on a person for the sake of relationship. And it's not interested in getting you to behave differently as much as it's interested in recreating you, making you the kind of person that God designed you to be. And it's very important that we don't mix these things up, especially as we're getting to the end here of Galatians, where Paul is giving us some practical encouragements. He's saying, now that you're new, here are what healthy relationships look like. Here are what healthy rhythms of the Christian life looks like, not the other way around. So we enter into these rhythms uh, to experience our new life in Christ, not to make ourselves new in Christ or to earn our seat at his table. 
And so let's look at he begins here, how he begins here in chapter 6. Dear brothers and sisters, so pause. He's talking to Christians here, right? Brothers and sisters, that's family language, the, to those inside of our house. If another who? Someone say this word right here. Believer. So it's saying if another Christian is caught, is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. So first, this is instruction for Christians about how we interact with Christians. If you're a Christian, this is what you'll do. So if you, if you trust God, if, if you're um, in fellowship with Jesus, this is what you'll do. And it's talking about how one believer relates to another believer. And it's important for us to emphasize that because a lot of us head out into the culture, head out into the world, head to our workplaces and see people who don't trust Jesus, who aren't following Jesus, living as though they don't follow Jesus, and we want to correct them for their behavior that betrays relationship with Jesus. So we want to correct people who don't walk with Jesus for not walking with Jesus. Does that make sense? Did I say that poorly? You get what I'm saying? So it's, it's foolish for us to expect people who aren't Christians to behave like Christians. And it's cruel of us to correct people who aren't Christians for not behaving like they're Christians. So this is insider language, right? This is for the family. For those who are on the outside, the only question that we entertain, the only question that we engage with is, is who is Jesus? Because, so here's my point. Some people, and I get this all the time. Maybe you guys don't get this, but it's like, hey, I found out you're a Christian. Hey, I found out you go to that church. Uh, if I came to your church, would I be allowed to? And then whatever it is. There's, and there's usually some moral or doctrinal issue at stake there, right? Do you guys believe that if I, blah, 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 and then we go down these rabbit trails. And the, the problem with that is the answer and the approach to any of those questions, um, it all comes down to how we answer that fundamental question of who is Jesus. Because if, I, if your response to who is Jesus is like, he's a wise philosopher, or like he's, a, he's an intellectual pundit who had wonderful things to say interpreting the Old Testament law. Um, it, the stakes are much lower if you're going to disagree with that guy. Uh, it, a, a good student at some point should disagree with their teacher, right? You're, you get a, a different point of view. If Jesus is just a philosopher, it's not that big of a deal to disagree. And you can take what you like from him, you can take what you agree with, and you can pitch the rest. And that's fine if he's just a wise He's a smart man who, who taught some helpful things. The conversation is much different if you say Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is maker of heaven and earth, if he holds the universe together every moment, then his way is a lot more than just a moral teaching, right? Like it's the underpinnings of how the universe works. So the question that we need to become better at or more skilled at with those outside of the faith isn't winning these moral debates or these different positions. It's who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? Because that changes everything. Once we're inside the church, once we've made this agreement, then we get this, we get this incredible opportunity. Um, we get the freedom to creatively forgive and correct each other. There's this constant back and forth. I would, I would call it a ministry of tears and truth. So, Look, someone who is overcome by sin, that, that was the word. Is it still up there? Yeah. Overcome by sin. Some of your translations may say caught in sin. Um, it's, it's being stuck 
but there's also connotations there of being surprised. Uh, the idea here is that someone is doing something, it's a habitual pattern, it's a way of being, that they're not necessarily aware they're doing it. You've done this, right? Like, you, you didn't, your spouse came to you and told you about something that you'd been doing, and you just were, you're totally caught off guard. What? I didn't know that. And then you start seeing, oh my gosh, I do do these things. So you, you can do silly things, you can do foolish things long enough that they start feeling normal, and you don't realize that it's something that's broken, and someone comes in and helps you see something that you're not aware of. This isn't like a bad night moment. This is a, a habitual pattern, a way of being. And so there's a truth component to this. I need to tell you the things that you're doing that are foolish. I need to tell you the things that you're doing that are unhealthy. But there's also an empathy component, a tears component, because we come gently and we come humbly. We don't critique, we don't condemn, but we hurt with them and for them, not from a position above them or as though we're better than them. Our tears move us to bring truth to them, restoring them to the the path of life. Truth without tears is dangerous, and tears without any truth isn't much more helpful. So the, the problem is, most of us, I certainly feel this, is we want precise answers to when we do what. Which one do we do when? And this life of freedom that Paul's been describing to us through the book of Galatians, I mean, some of the most important words in the life of freedom are creativity and discernment. No two situations are precisely alike. No two people are precisely alike. And if, if you come to the Bible expecting it to give you black and white answers for the right and wrong thing to do in every situation, the person that will frustrate you the most is Jesus himself. Because you go to the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels. These are the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll, you'll read and see Jesus interact one way, and you're like, okay, this is how I do it. And then he'll go, in almost the same situation, interact with somebody in a different way. And then it's like, well, which one is it, Jesus? Do I do A or do I do B? So, for example, in John chapter 11, you may know the story of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus a good friend of Jesus, who passes away. And Jesus knew it was going to come, and he stalls. Like, Jesus stays away. And he comes. Y'all remember Lazarus' sisters? What were their names? Mary and Martha. Thank you. Well done. Uh, Mary and Martha. Uh, and he has basically the same interaction with them. First, he comes to Martha. And Martha says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And some of you can relate to that kind of pain. God, if you had done what I know you're capable of doing, this would not have happened. And so she looks at Jesus and says, if you hadn't been late, my brother would die. You can feel the pain behind that. And Jesus responds to her. You can go read this in your Bible. He says, well, he'll rise. And she says, yes, on the resurrection day. So there's this theological rabbit trail that they go down about a debated Jewish belief in that day. And so, again, Jesus says, Martha, he'll rise. And she says, yes, on the resurrection day. And then look at what Jesus says to her. Well, there's that. <laughs> That's what the building looks like. It's going to be good. Take, take me to... What are, John eleven twenty five? There it is. Jesus told her, "I'm the resurrection and the life." Remember, he will rise. Yes, on resurrection day, and he says, "I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die." Do you believe this, Martha? You see this—the intensity of the response here. 
He gives her a theology lesson. He gives her truth. This feels awfully confrontational for a woman who just lost her brother. Seems awfully confrontational for someone grieving. I mean, this is a deathbed conversation. Then Mary comes to Jesus right after that, Martha's sister, and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She says the same thing to him. And this is how Jesus responds to Mary. He cries with her. And this is like, this is grown man crying, wept here. It's not like he shed a single tear. You know, Jesus is weeping with this woman. Tears and truth, same question, different people, different responses from Jesus. Tears and truth. Martha needed one thing, Mary needed another. As as we grow in our intimacy with Jesus, we learn the fluid dynamics, the, the, the rhythms of life in the Spirit. The, the word that's translated here, um, bring them back or put them back, it's a medical word about resetting a dislocated bone. So it's looking at these people who are in habitual patterns of sin, of departures from the truth, as though they're like a dislocated shoulder, and it throws the whole body out of whack. We need discernment to see when something is out of place especially where it's, it's normal to be Christians now for, for so many of us in so many parts of our countries. There's cultural things that can look Christian. We need the discernment to know, is this out of place or is this sincere? What is going on here? We need the creativity to know how to reset the bone. And listen, no one can spell it out for you. This is how to handle this situation. This is how to handle this situation. This is how to handle this situation. Sometimes tears, sometimes truth, sometimes correction. Other times we get something else. Verse 2, share each other's burdens, and in this way obey the law of Christ. Sometimes we correct, sometimes we weep, then we enter in and we, we come up under a weight with somebody. This is oppressive suffering. This is overwhelming suffering, this word burdens here. We, we bear up under a struggle with someone. We don't just correct them. Um, and, I mean, this is another unique guarantee of the Christian life that sets us apart from all other religions. There is no promise that your suffering and pain will be ended in this life in Christianity. Like, much the opposite. Christianity guarantees you hardship. So if you're a Christian and life is hard for you, that doesn't mean anything went wrong. Jesus, remember to his disciples in, in the Gospel of John again, he says, in this life you will have what? Troubles. You'll have tribulations. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because they love me, right? Like Jesus guarantees us that life is hard, that life will be broken until the day the trumpets sound and he comes back and makes all things new again. Um, it reminds me of, anybody read their kids the book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt? Anybody read that book? Yeah. Which, first of all, as a side note, since it's Kids' Choir Day, that's bad parenting, what's going on in that story, right? Like, it's not good parenting to go hunting for bears with your kids. Uh, so, just let the reader understand. Please don't go looking for bears. Y'all know there's a bear on 64 just down the street? That's yeah, so they're out here. So the point of the story, anyway, that's all off the rails. The point of the story is... They, this family encounters all of these obstacles, and the refrain of the book is, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we'll have to go through it, right? 
Christianity says you are united with Christ. And when life gets hard, when the difficulties I've promised you come, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, but I've given you all you need to get through it. And in in some ways, this is a spiritual empowerment, right? Like an internal, the indwelling power of the Spirit that does something in you. But it's also this wonderful gift of the Christian community that we have, that we have brothers and sisters and part of this family. One of the primary ways that we get through it, whatever the pain and hardship of life is, is through the church. And by the church, I mean the people of God, not the pastors, not the staff, the people. And this is why Paul says, This is awesome. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. You're just not that important. If your life is too busy to be a normal Christian, your life is too busy. You've been fooled. You've been deceived. Or to put it another way, no one is too important to have their hands on the burden-sharing plow of the church. So when someone's like, hey, I'm too important to help in that way, and just brush their hands away from it. So let's think about this. Who corrects? Who, who does that ministry of truth and tears? Who points things out and resets the bone? It's, it's Christians, normal Christians. Who do we correct? Normal Christians. Who shares the burden? Christians. We don't just pray for somebody's burdens, which we do, which we should, which is appropriate. We also enter in and help carry the load. Well, do I carry everybody's load? All the questions that come. How much load is too much for me to carry? I would say if, if your attempt of following the Scriptures makes Jesus out to be a liar, that's too much load. So when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, if your obedience to the promises of God has crushed your soul to the point of exhaustion and fractured relationships... Something's gone sideways there. I'm not saying you're never to be tired when you're a Christian. Following Jesus is tiring. But it's it's similar when you see Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and he sits down because he's tired, and then he's invigorated in the ministry that happens there. He's refreshed through serving the Lord. So I'm not saying it should never be difficult. It should never be tiring. But it shouldn't make Jesus out to be a liar. Where's the line? How do I know precisely? Again, creativity and discernment. We will have to figure this out with one another in every specific context, relying on the Spirit. And that's particularly important because this next verse is one where if you, if you read the Bible slowly and you're not just like trying to get through your Bible reading plan, Galatians 6, 1 through 5 should make you really uncomfortable. It's one of those verses people go to be like, look, the Bible contradicts itself. So here we go. Let's see. Look, Bible contradiction. Oh no, we're closing the church today. Um, He says, pay careful attention to your own work for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Uh, The the New Living Translation, which this is from, softens it a little bit, makes it a little bit more straightforward. Some translations you'll get earlier in Galatians 6, share each other's burdens. And then here at the end in 4 and 5, it'll say, carry your own burden. Uh, And you're like, well, which one is it, right? Am I responsible for my own work or for everybody else's work? Do I, do I carry your burdens or am I just supposed to carry my own burden? Is this a we thing or is it just a me thing? Well, uh, conduct here is the word that gets translated differently in different places. Uh, some of your translations will say burden probably. Uh, 
the word behind these that we're translating from, they're different words, uh, which is one indication. A helpful like rule of thumb when you read something and you feel like you're the person who's discovered what's wrong with the Bible. Like I go, I come to the Bible with the assumption that the people who wrote it weren't stupid, right? And so Paul wouldn't say, uh, share each other's burdens, you're only responsible for your own burden, right? Like get curious when there's things that don't make sense or the only explanation is this guy is unintelligent when he wrote it. So we've got different words for burden under here. The the first one we saw is, is it's overwhelming suffering. It's, a, it's oppressive suffering, stuff that you didn't choose. It's, it's too heavy for any one person to carry. This word here, conduct, um, each responsible for our own conduct, that other places, that will get translated as a soldier's backpack. So there's burdens that are, that are overwhelming for you. It's too much for any one person to hold. But every one of us has a, a one-man load that is ours and ours alone to carry. See what I'm saying? There's some things, your life will be hard, and there's work that you and only you can do. And things get sideways if you don't do your own work. So there, there's obvious ones, like no one else gets to be a spouse to your spouse. No one else gets to be a, a parent to your child the, the way you do. Though, there's those kinds of things, but you know, in a bigger picture sense, like first, no one but you can do your own work on your soul, right? I can't cultivate a life of prayer for you. Maybe for one of you, that'd be a good consulting gig, right? Like I'll pay X amount of dollars to come make me pray every Tuesday at 6 a.m. or something like that. Can't do that for hundreds of people though. I cannot teach you how to pray in a way that is genuine and authentic and intimate with God. Only you can cultivate your life of prayer. I cannot mature your soul. Your community group leader can't do it. Only you can care for the health of your own soul. And if you don't, if you don't care for your soul and you make your life crazy, it's not everyone else's fault. It, if you make your life crazy to refuse to do your own work, that's not everyone else's fault. Well, where's the line? I don't know. I don't know. This is all under the rubric or under the heading of life by the Spirit, creativity and discernment. But listen, there is work that you and only you can do. It's a one-man load and nobody else can do it for you. Care for your own soul. Second, and with this, uh, no one else can give an account for your soul on Judgment Day. So the great fate of humanity is every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. No one will be left wondering, is Jesus Lord or not? So in that moment, everyone will agree Jesus is Lord. The question is, do we want to go to the party or not? Do you want to go to the great banquet or not? And on that day, when you're standing before Jesus, he won't say like, Jessica, hold on a minute. I'm going to talk to your pastor first. Pastor, how did she do? Tell me. He's going to look at you and say, who do you say that I am? What did you do with the gospel? What did you do with my invitations to you? The pastors get a different deal, right? He's going to look at me and say, how did you care for them? How did you teach them? How did you love them? That's why I have bags under my eyes, right? Like, that's why the pastors don't sleep sometimes. Because there's so many messy and confusing situations. Don't let verses like that distract you. You will have to give an account for your soul on Judgment Day. No one can do that for you. Well, is it a personal issue or is it a communal issue? Where's the line? Creativity and discernment. This is necessarily ambiguous because that's how all relationships work. 
You can't figure out people. We're, we're mysteries to explore and enjoy. A, a, a figured out human is a reduced person. It's a simplified person. Relationships require give and take, participation. There is no relationship when it's a one-sided deal, right? It's, it's participation back and forth, learning and growing. And like all of Jesus' invitations, this one being fundamentally to walk by the Spirit, it begins in our own hearts. Who do you say Jesus is? Like, that is the question for us. Who do you say he is? And then begin with your own life. Get your house in order. Get your life in order. And like, maybe you all have seen this. Boy, do I see this. Some people go and try to solve the world's problems as a way to avoid one or two of their own. It's so much easier to talk about the grand, large-scale issues of the world to avoid the mess going on in my own life. And this is not the way of Christ. He doesn't need our grandiose dreams of changing the world. He needs simple, faithful obedience played out over a long time. He needs ordinary Christians in the regular rhythms of holiness, change, intimacy, relationship. And it starts in our own homes and in our own hearts. Do your work. Carry your load, Christian. Do your work. And then we look out. We're not trying to correct. We're not trying to critique or crush. We're looking out for the health of our body the health of our brothers and sisters. We share the load. This is how we become a community of joy. Uh, This is the promise of Advent. The the third week of Advent, we light the the joy candle. And joy is worlds apart from the idea of happiness. The Christian is not one who avoids our troubles, but we face them and we experience the goodness of Jesus in them. We're not harsh with one another. Rather, we're loving and gentle because that's how Jesus was with us. We're not in a hurry with one another. We're patient because that's how Jesus is with us. We don't demand overnight change. We go for long-term transformation. And as we embrace these regular rhythms of life, of doing our own work, of sharing our burdens, of tears and truth, what we've become to learn is that there is nothing that the Christian cannot endure. No, we can't go over it. No, we can't go around it. But because Christ is in me and the community of God is around me, we will make it. We will make it to the promised land. We can endure. And that is what joy is. It's it's not this momentary happiness, which thank God for happiness, right? Like I am pro-happiness, but happiness will not sustain us. And the promise of the Christian life is not happiness. It's that our houses can be built on foundations of stone, so that when the storms come, we are not blown over. The promise isn't that storms will cease in this life, but rather that we will be set on a firm foundation and we will not be moved. This is not an activity or a behavior that Christians do. This is who we are. The children of God, loved by Him, pursued by Him, empowered by Him. How do we know? He shared our burdens with us. You know, we have a God who requires nothing of us that he hasn't first provided for us. He's shared our burdens. He's carried our weakness. He's bore our sorrows. He's atoned for our sin on the cross. He sealed the promise of new life in his resurrection. What more do we need? This joy doesn't come in circumstances. It comes in communion with Christ. Like, have you, are you old enough? Are you awake enough to know that circumstances won't change the problems of your soul? Like, have you seen enough change in your life and the old feelings come back to know that's not what you're needing? 
Joy is found in communion with Christ, and that will include fellowship in his sufferings. There we find the words of that old song to be true, that in relationship with Jesus, we find strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Do your work. Become who Jesus is making you to be. Share burdens. Gently, humbly bring relief and correction. Tears and truth. This is who we are. And there you will find the joy of the Lord, and it will be your strength. We come to communion to remember the promise that we are a new creation, and we have what we need. We remember on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, and he said, take this wine and remember my blood was shed for you, and this seals your relationship with God. If the body of Christ is still broken and the blood of Christ is still shed, that means we're safe with God. We've been reconciled and our home can be built on a firm foundation. Uh, Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward. There'll be stations in the back. You can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Uh, The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements up here by the, the Christmas tree. I'll pray for us and then Christians. Let's remember the source of our joy together. Let's pray.